Welcome to Ew, That's Creepy podcast. This week, the twins will be sharing the true stories behind popular urban legends. Melissa is going to start by telling Jackie the heartbreaking true tale behind the Candyman legend and movie. Please be aware that this episode will heavily discuss drug addiction, gang activity, violence, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Ew That's Creepy podcast. Jackie and I are here to tell you some spooky little tales once again. And it's finally spooky season. We hope you guys have been having a good fall season so far. I guess we're pretty far into September, so I hope it's been good for all of you guys and you're starting to do all of the spooky things. Let us know on Instagram what movies you guys are watching, what TV shows you guys are watching this fall season. Let us know. Yes, and today Jackie and I decided that the theme we wanted to do to kind of stick to, you know, spooky October theme was to talk about some real urban legends, true stories behind popular urban legends, you know, that whole thing. Wasn't there like some urban legend show? Was it just called Urban Legends? Yeah, there was. On sci-fi or what was it on? I don't remember. It was so I felt long. like it was like, like I kind of liked it when we were kids. I guarantee it's on Discovery Plus. <laughs> <laughs> I should look into that. <laughs> I guarantee if anywhere was to have it, it's good old Discovery Plus. It's probably cheesy though if I watched it now, but. Probably. This case, like, let me just preface, is, it's a lot. It's a lot to take on. It's a lot of just, like, crazy, like, it's one of those where it's just so much kind of negativity in one situation. It's sad, you know, it has to deal with Chicago and the black community in the 70s and 90s. And it's tough. So, forewarning everyone with that great <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not just you know it's not like urban legend hee hee bloody mary anything like that no it's a really serious story and this is the case that inspired can you mean yeah you said that so fast i was like what <laughs> i don't know because I, right after you said bloody mary i don't know i was just like Candy Who man. else is as popular as Bloody Mary? And then when you said Chicago, it made me think of the movie. Because isn't the movie, wasn't the movie in Chicago or no? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. The movie actually. I like actually, that movie. <laughs> yeah. That um, was a good one. I watched, uh, I showed Jackie and my mom the remake last fall, I think, when it came out. I had to buy it because I saw it and it was so good. I thought about it for like two weeks after that. I loved it. The original was pretty wild, too. Yeah, the original is scary as hell. And it is set in Chicago in the Cabrini Green Projects, which is actually part of our story. The, um, yeah, and this is like, it is part, it is based on Candyman, but it's also kind of, you know, based on an urban legend of like 
people hiding behind your walls, people in your mirrors. Ew. That kind of thing. But this is real. That is so creepy. Like, my Mm -hmm. worst nightmare is someone being in my walls or behind my mirror. Actually. Before we get into the specifics and everything, I just want to give a really quick shout out. And, like, I highly recommend reading these articles. I was so deep into these articles. I seriously, like, for the last week, I almost feel like it was like I was, like, dreaming about this case. That's how deep into this I was. And there were two articles written by the same person, Steve Bogaira. The first one was called They Came In Through the Bathroom Mirror, and that was by Steve Bogaira, published on September 3rd, 1987. And then he wrote a follow-up article, Cause of Death, What Killed Ruthie Mae McCoy, A Bullet in the Chest or Life in the Projects. And that was written in, that was published in June on June 12th of 1990. So I highly recommend that everyone read those articles. They were two articles that were, you know, they were going to take you like a half hour at least to read. They were so long, but they just give you so much information. They were really good. That sounds deep. They sound like heavy articles. They are. They are. So without further ado. Like I told Jackie before, it is, this case was the inspiration for the 1992 film Candyman. Candyman is also, it's adapted by a short story, Forbidden Fruit, with Clive Barker's short story. But Forbidden Fruit isn't about Chicago or anything like that, but um, the movie is. And like I said, it was based in the Cabrini Green Projects in Chicago. The legend in the movie goes that if you look into a mirror and say Candyman five times, then a man with a hook for a hand will appear in the mirror before climbing out and gutting you like a fish. Ew. Like a fish. Like how he says it in Scream. (laughs) Uh, Candyman does this because he was once a black slave who was an incredibly talented artist in the 1800s. Sadly, he fell in love with a white woman, and because of this, he was later tortured and killed, and they cut off his hand and replaced it with a hook. So that's why he has a hook when he comes to kill you. Simple enough. That's already dark. Yeah, so that's how it goes in the movie, and um, that's the legend. And let's talk about the truth. Our case begins... On April 22nd, 1987, in Chicago, Illinois. The majority of this case will take place in ABLA units, which were four different housing projects built by the Chicago Housing Authority in the 1950s. CHA for short, Chicago Housing Authority. One of the units is the infamous Cabrini Green Housing Unit. Cabrini Green is where a lot of Candyman was set, was taking place. That's not where our case takes place, but that's why if you hear that name and it sounds familiar, it's most likely from watching that movie. Wait, they filmed it there or that's that's where the where movie it's is based. It's based. Oh, okay. Yeah. So remember yeah. like when we watch it, they say it all the time, like the legend of Cabrini Green. Okay. I was gonna say that does sound familiar. But yeah. I mean that would be cool, I guess, if they filmed it there. In I'm not sure if they filmed it. 
there. In Chicago. Yeah, because, like, these projects were, were all torn down later on. Mm. So they definitely, I don't know if they filmed the current one where the projects were left. I'm not sure, but in the movie Candyman, the setting is Cabrini Green, Chicago. The buildings were Y-shaped, high-rise apartment buildings, meaning that there were a lot of floors that went really high up, and they're pretty cram-packed with people. If you would see a picture, they go, like, high into the sky, and you can just imagine there are thousands of people living in there. On April 22nd, 1987, Chicago police received a phone call from one of the ABLA units the Grace Abbott Homes building. And this building was also known to be the most dangerous of the four and had a lot of activity there, which we will get more into. The caller was a woman who sounded a little older and she was clearly frantic. She started saying to the dispatcher, some people next door are tearing this down which the dispatcher didn't know what they meant. And they were asking her, you know, like, what, what do you mean? And the caller said they throwed the cabinet down. The dispatcher was obviously still confused. So they said something like thrown from where to which the caller responded, I'm in the projects. I'm on the other side. You can reach, you can reach my bathroom and they want to come through the bathroom. The dispatcher at this time sent police to her address, but I guess the dispatcher put it in as a dispute with a neighbor. So police say that when they showed up, they weren't, they didn't know that they were showing up to a robbery or a break-in or anything like that. They thought it was a neighbor dispute. But at 9.02 PM, which was just a couple minutes after that first call, The dispatch got another call, which was placed from the apartment building, who said that they heard gunshots coming from a neighbor's apartment. At 9.04 p.m., two minutes later, another call came in from a different resident saying that they were also in the building and they heard gunshots and shouting from apartment 1109, which was the apartment that the person had called from. Two more police officers were sent to the apartment to Grace Abbott and at 10, I'm sorry, 9, 10 p.m., four officers arrived and were sent to apartment 1109 where the call was sent and all this commotion was coming from. They knocked on the door, but there was no answer. And when they got quiet, there wasn't any sound coming from behind the door. The police asked the dispatchers to call back the caller, and they did, and police could hear the phone ringing from behind the door, but no one was answering. That's creepy. I don't know. That's like an ear, a very eerie vibe. And you know what's really creepy? We'll talk about this more later, but just because you mentioned something creepy, police at one point said to the other dispatcher, and they have this like on record that he was, they were trying to ask people on the floor if they heard anything. And someone at some point said that the person who lived there always opened their door. And the police like said to the dispatcher, I guess kind of a thought out loud, like, well, I wonder if she opened it to the wrong person, which is just like... Uh. 
That gives me the chills. The whole scene is just not looking good from the start. But with no response from inside, two of the officers were figuring, okay, why don't we go over to the housing office to see if they have a key or if they have a skeleton key and let's just try and open the door. So the project officer, housing officer person gives them a key, but police try it and it doesn't fit on the lock. So now police are kind of like, uh, we don't know, should we break it down? Police say that they say that in the projects they get a lot of prank calls and a lot of calls that they don't know how serious the level is. So they didn't want to just necessarily break in. Like I said a minute ago, they started to ask and knock on doors on the floor and see if anyone had heard anything because people did call in, but no one was answering the door. A lot of the rooms were vacant. Some tenants did answer and just said, we didn't see and hear anything and just like slammed the door. Only one person did talk to police and that was the person who said that there is a woman inside and I know she'll answer the door if you knock. So kind of weird (laughs) that she's not. And so police, like I said, they're kind of like, well, we don't know what to do. We're only supposed to break the door down if there's an active robbery or an active crime and we don't hear anything behind the door and we don't know. So let's just leave. And they left. What? They left. 40 (sighs) minutes after the initial call, they just left, even though they could hear the phone that called ringing inside. What the hell? Like, I'm sorry, but break down the door. The next day, a tenant complained to the Grace Abbott Project office that they had not seen one of the other tenants who they were friends with, a 52-year-old woman named Ruthie Mae McCoy. And I believe that they again went and they knocked and no one was there. And then another day went by and someone else was like, okay, we still haven't seen her. So what is going on? The office, not even the police, the office sent, like, a carpenter or someone who used a drill to open the door. Dear God. These poor people. It's like, this is what police is supposed to do. I know. When they opened the door, they found 52-year-old Ruthie Mae McCoy dead in her bedroom from, from four gunshot wounds. She was lying on her side, and there had clearly been, um... An altercation. So let's talk about Ruthie May and Ruthie May McCoy, her life, everything like that. Ruthie May was born in Arkansas around 1935. She had eight other siblings. When she was a child, her family, along with many other Southern black families at the time, moved to Chicago, Illinois. With the promise of a better life, better business opportunities. However, Ruthie May's father was only, he could only find work in the coal industry, so he wasn't making a lot. And the family did struggle. Times were tough. Ruthie May, she didn't receive an education. She, um, I think she went to high school for a year, but dropped out. I'm not sure if it was money or if it was like the means to get there I'm assuming she would have had to walk or find some way to get there herself so 
She unfortunately could not get an education either. When Ruthie reached her 20s, she did start to show signs of mental illness. Her family remembered that she started to talk to herself abnormally. She experienced intense outbursts and mood swings. Now, the McCoy family is pretty religious, I would say. They said when they were talking to Steve, the writer, throughout the article, they said that some of them kind of thought that it was because Ruthie didn't go to church as much, that she had mental illness, like that kind of thing. But, I mean, that's neither here nor there. Her family was extremely religious, so they all really relied on God and really put their faith in God that, like, if they just had faith that things in life would get better. But, unfortunately for Ruthie, she did continue to have mental health problems throughout her life. And like I said, there's no judgment or anything like that. That's just kind of a reason, too, why she doesn't have the money, the means, nor anyone who's pushing her to be like, okay, why don't you get mental health assistance? Why don't you go to therapy or anything like that? So she didn't really get treatment until a little bit later on. By age 27, Ruthie had her first and her only child, a daughter who she named Vernita. I love that name. Me too. Unfortunately, though, when Vernita was born, the father deserted Ruthie and deserted his daughter. And that experience really caused Ruthie to develop an opinion about men Um, especially black men from the projects, she wasn't trusting of them anymore. She really didn't trust anyone after this, um, but, and because of her paranoia, but this especially caused her to, like, not trust men at all and believe that all men in her area just had a hustle lifestyle and that sort of thing. So, she did get Vernita, but that experience kind of changed her a little bit. I'm sure as it would with anyone. Vernita spoke to Steve throughout the article and detailed how she would often stay with relatives as a child because her mother would need to be institutionalized when her behavior would become too erratic. The hospitals would give Ruthie medicine for her behavior, which it would help when Ruthie took it. But when she ran out and she didn't have, like, a steady, constant stream of medication, she would become erratic again. Specifically, a lot of people just said that Ruthie would cuss at people on the street and neighbors randomly. Um, She had a walking stick and she would kind of poke it at people. That sort of thing. She never just attacked anyone, but she would just make comments to people. Now, Ruthie was 5'11 and 250 pounds. So I could see how that could be a little intimidating. Well, that, but it's not, at the same time, it's not like people were going to, turn, like, be like, what did you say? And Yeah, like beat her up or something. Exactly. So she didn't. You know, she didn't have people trying to, like, come after her all the time or anything. But Vernita just remembers sometimes in her childhood, you know, asking her mom why she was cussing at people. Which is really, it made me really sad. That breaks my heart. And she said that 
she would say to her mom, like, one day you could get hurt. Like, someone could hurt you. And she, um, you know, Vernita just kind of was doing her best the same way that Ruthie was. But because of Ruthie's on and off mental state, she also could not keep a full-time job. She would do small jobs, like part-time jobs, such as being a housekeeper or small little things, but she couldn't permanently keep anything substantial. So she did get um, assistance from the government for her mental illness. And that was basically her main source of income. In 1983, the apartment where Ruthie was currently living flooded in the basement and she was forced to move out. She applied for emergency housing through the Chicago Housing Authority, CHA, who we discussed in the beginning. And in her letters, Ruthie specifically asked if she could live in a building that was closest to relatives in Chicago. And she specifically said she did not want to be in a high-rise apartment because everyone knew at that time in the early 80s, throughout the 80s, that the high-rise buildings were becoming pretty rampant with drug addiction, crime, not good things. But unfortunately, Ruthie didn't have any options. Living through a CHA program was all she could afford at the time. The apartments were only $45 a month, so it was literally all she could afford to live after her other one flooded, so she was placed in the Grace Abbott apartment. She was placed into a high-rise, unfortunately, and the most dangerous one, also unfortunately. So in 1983, she and Vernita, who was now an adult and had a grandson, all moved into the Grace Abbott apartment. Now let's talk about the ABLA project's apartments at this time, because that is a huge part of this case. The Grace Abbott building was basically a war zone. When I was reading about this, like, I was astounded, you know, not that you, people say that things like this happen, but when you're reading about just all of this happening in one building, it's just hard to even imagine There was gang violence and drug addiction just everywhere. And so in a 1980 Chicago census that was sent out, the average annual salary for a family living in the Grace Abbott buildings was a little over uh, $4,500. What year year is this again? 1980. That was that census. Yikes. It was also found that the majority of people living in the apartments were 18 or under, and 85% of the families were, the head of the family was a woman. Huh. So, like, I, could, I couldn't even imagine being a young, a young black woman at this time. And it's this dangerous in there. The assault, and this is all from the articles that I talked about in the beginning, so definitely give them a read. The assault, rape, and murder rates of ABLA residents is double the rate of non-ABLA residents. Double. Like, if you move into one of these buildings, you are literally twice as likely to get attacked, murdered, 
Like, and that's so scary thinking that she had a move in there with her daughter and her grandchild. Yeah, like Vernita is, a, she's a grown woman now, but her grandchild, like you have so much to worry about at that point, not even yourself. It was said that when you walk through the hallways of Grace Abbott, half of the hallways would be dark because the bulbs were burnt out. And like I said, the building, it was, the windows were only in the rooms. The stairways didn't have windows. So at this time, they, janitors would say that almost every hallway sometimes would be dark and always the stairways would be dark because they would put light bulbs in and people would steal them and sell them and they didn't have any natural light. So it would be completely dark. And it was said that PCP addicted residents and other residents would literally wait in the shadows to try and jump out and rob other residents or attack them for money, drugs, whatever. The elevators, if they didn't work, which was often, more often than not, you basically were forced to walk through the pitch black stairway. And just all of the this combination of things, um, there was also an article that said... You know, the farther back an apartment building is and the higher it goes, the more crime it is. So the way these buildings were built was just like literally a breeding ground for crime. They're pushed back from a street where someone could hear you. Everything is dark. You have all these like younger people too who are making a lot of money. It seems like there's a lot of drug issues going on. It just seems like, yeah, a really bad environment. Literally, literally my next bullet was revolving around that. So then there became this issue because the apartments were so cheap that people would put their name on the lease and pay for the lease. And then they would rent out the apartment to someone else who was using it for crime. So a lot of the times the apartments would be rented out to drug dealers or gang members who were just using the apartment solely to manufacture drugs, to stash weapons, to do drugs. Like, so a lot of the times the people who had their name on the lease weren't even living there. And it was just anyone and whoever they wanted to bring in could be there and be living there. When cocaine was introduced in the 80s, it, of course, took everyone by storm. And the article said that to really put, you know, just the crime was even more rampant. Um, Everyone was doing drugs, doing or dealing. Men, women, children, even the elderly. It said that people, you know, sometimes the elderly were not involved. And now they were selling marijuana and things like that. And it was like just all rules went out the window in these apartments. It was just crazy. Steve. Are there pictures? Yeah, there are pictures. Like, I tried to find pictures of the inside. There aren't as many as you would think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it's not that surprising considering, like, these people aren't going to be having cameras. Yeah, and it will, like, why would a photographer just, like, go there? Yeah, so So. there, there are a lot of pictures of people on the outside and pictures of the building themselves. There are some of the inside, but not as many as you would think. 
Steve, the author of the article, mentioned too that it's really sad for children seeing a lot of children in these buildings. He wrote of a time when he was interviewing a young man about the McCoy case and a young woman came up to him with a toddler and asked to speak to the man and the man said no he was in the middle of business and the woman just started screaming saying she didn't give an f about his business and she needed her mf and money and steve just said it was crazy like he was said it happened like it was nothing and he just looked down at the toddler who just wasn't even noticing and he said it was just a sad thing to see like people screaming obscenities at each other with a toddler there like no one cared there was also a janitor who stayed anonymous he was just known as the janitor in the articles he talked a lot to steve about living there and what it's like to be in these projects at the time he said that he would get so emotional about the children when he first started working but he says that now that he's been there he just sees everyone is so desensitized he said that the kids like their game is throwing bottles and bricks at each other like it's nothing like everyone's desensitized to violence and he says then in turn he gets desensitized where now he gets frustrated at the kids like it's not how in the beginning where he felt bad for them and it's just this whole cycle and on top of that too then the janitor said that there, like, no one also, no one is wanting to step up and be a janitor or a maintenance worker in these apartments, obviously. There are no background checks being done by CHA. They're not caring at all, clearly, about who's leasing these apartments. And so the janitor said that so many of the apartments were vacant and drug pushers would just rip down the boarded up like the boards from these boarded up apartments and just scrap the entire apartment, take everything they could, sell it. And then the space that was left, people would just go in and use it as like a drug den. And then at that point, the CHA like couldn't even get the apartment back because they didn't have anyone who would go in and kick the drug pushers out or they didn't even have money to make repairs And so at that point, the apartment was just like left and was just a vacant apartment for anyone to go in and do whatever. And that's so insane to me thinking that, yeah, other people with children just live right in this chaos. Yeah. The gangs were so bad. People were terrified of this one gang. Um, I believe they were called the Paymasters. I'm not going to get into them. You guys can read about them if they want. But they were like really young people who didn't listen to any rules like they didn't give an f about anything they were a living a ton in these abla buildings people were terrified they said that it if it was known if you spoke to the police the retaliation was they would light your door on fire and you'd be in a high rise and you only have a window you don't have a way out And Steve wrote that there were many burned doors that could attest to that as he walked through and saw. Jeez. So all of that, like, that is what we're living in. So, and let me say, it's not understandable. I mean, I'm sure in a way it kind of is, but it's, it's obvious that police are not rushing here by any means. No. 
It said that police, if they knew that, if they showed up to a call, if they even showed up, if they did show up and the elevator was not working, they wouldn't go. They wouldn't go up the steps. Some people say, like, it's justified. Like, there are people who say they witnessed people make a call and attack police in a dark stairway just because, you know. That's terrifying. Like, the, oh my god. And that comes back up. Like, I'm not just saying all of this to, like, just throw it in for the shock value and things like that. All of this comes back up and plays into this case. Like, the stairways and everything like that. So... It's just crazy. And that's the building where then Ruthie Mae is sent to live with Vernita and her grandson. As you can understand, she wanted no part of it, but they literally had no choice. Her, like, she is mentally ill and she can't keep up a full-time job to get her out of there. It's just like, ugh. Now, Vernita's boyfriend and the father of her child did move in with them. But sadly, Ruthie May lashed out at him a lot. She said that he was just like Vernita's dad. And because of this, Vernita decided that she wanted to leave with her children and her boyfriend and they all live elsewhere. It was really sad because, like, it seemed like Ruthie didn't want Vernita's boyfriend there. But when Vernita also left... She got really depressed and her mental health spiraled in a little bit. She was cursing at people a lot more, acting more erratic. She kind of started to get into a couple physical altercations just because of like her talking to making comments to people. She was getting really, really paranoid. She was Residents said that Ruthie was obsessed with locking herself in at night. I mean, obviously, but neighbors said that Ruthie would walk around to like her friends and stuff and pull on the door handles. And if their door wasn't locked, she would open it and like give them a give them an earful about how it wasn't. So, you know, like people said she had good intentions. She just like didn't know how to go about things like. And I'm sure that is just because of her mental health. Right. Exactly. And after showing erratic behavior at a hospital visit for her grandchild, Ruthie was taken to the Illinois State Psychiatric Institute, ISPCI, where she was diagnosed as having schizophrenic type behavior. ISPCI did not keep her against her will, but they recommended that she visit the Mount Sinai Psychiatric Center. Now, the Mount Sinai Psychiatric Center is like a small piece of heaven for the mentally ill struggling within the projects. Honestly, it even said that like people who went to Mount Sinai sometimes were considered mentally ill just because they were so worked up and stressed about living in the projects and like the area. So this psychiatric center, it was a nonprofit state funded center where visitors can socialize with one another, do group therapy sessions. You could take classes to earn a GED, do crafts, learn a new skill, have a hot meal. Like it was just this really awesome place. And Ruthie did check herself in there. She, at first, so a woman named Sandy Siegel, she was a coordinator at Mount Sinai. 
And she spoke to Steve heavily throughout the article. She gave a lot of information just about the community at the time. And she worked with Ruthie from the time she entered until um, the time of her passing. And she said that at first, Ruthie was very untrusting. She definitely still thought, especially with men, that everyone was hustling all the time. Like she couldn't get out of it. She was very paranoid even there. But as she stayed and got to know people, she became more friendly. She understood that she could trust people there. Ruthie started taking classes so that she could get her GED, even though she was 52. And she became sort of like a mother figure to the younger visitors. She would give them advice about raising children and... She wasn't afraid to give her opinion and people there respected her for that and they liked her opinion and welcomed it. Sandy also started helping Ruthie go through her paperwork and letters that she would get flustered by. And with the help um, of Sandy, Ruthie applied for Supplemental Security Income, SSI, which is federal aid for the physically and mentally disabled. And that doubled her monthly income. So that was awesome. In February of 1987, just two months before her murder, Ruthie received a large check of almost $2,000 because it was like backdated payments with the way that SSI runs. So she received a lot of money and she told her friends at Mount Sinai and her family that she wanted to leave the projects for good and that that was going to help the money She was going to use the money to leave the projects. She wanted to finish school and get her GED. And she wanted to somehow become a nurse or do... She wanted to just get a full-time job. Like, that was just what she wanted. She, Sandy and her also wrote letters to CHA asking for a different transfer. Asking for a transfer to a different housing unit stating her mental health and also stating that she had high blood pressure and she couldn't walk up the steps every time the elevator was busted, which was like all the time. But they denied her transfer and they never said why. On April 22nd, 1987, Ruthie May visited Mount Sinai like she usually did. She spoke with Sandy like usual, telling Sandy that she needed help looking for an apartment because she needed to get out of the projects ASAP. Sandy agreed to help her as she would, and the two women said their goodbyes as Ruthie got on the van and went back to the ABLA high-rise apartment that she lived in. And later that night, around nine or so, was when Ruthie heard a noise coming from her bathroom area. When she looked, we're unsure of if she had the medicine cabinet there at the time or if she removed it. But either way, when she looked, she saw a young man coming through the medicine cabinet in her bathroom. That is so freaking scary. Yeah. So when the building was built in the 50s, They had the two end apartments, like on the end of the hallway, would be connected through the bathrooms, through the medicine cabinets. And it was so, like, if there were any issues with water, the water pipes, 
you could remove the cabinet and do maintenance work back there. A janitor could do it. So it wasn't like, you know, you just push it to the side. But if you took screws off of it, you could easily just move it. And there would be about a two foot space or so. And you would crawl through to the two foot space and then crawl through the other person's cabinet. And into another person's apartment. Of course, you know, and they don't expect when they built the apartments and everything that people would do this. But obviously... Or, like, find out about it. How would you even know? They don't know. No one knows for sure. Just somehow someone found out that... I'm sure it started when drug dealers somehow found it out and found out that they could get adjacent apartments and use one as an escape room. Like, that was how people, of course, started it. You know, you could get apartments and use a stash room. Or if the police ever showed up, you could bail really quick and go out the other room. But then, sadly, of course, people also thought you can also rob your neighbors. If you wanted to murder a neighbor, you could go through that. And very unfortunately, Ruthie lived in one of the end apartments connected to an adjacent apartment. Ruthie May had told Vernita and friends before that she had heard someone trying to come through the cabinet. Oh my god. And she was really terrified and that was why she was so saying like I need to get out of the projects like I need to get out of this apartment. Ruthie realized on that night what was going on It's believed she didn't run because she assumed that there were more robbers at the door. Like, she was familiar enough with the way of the projects in that area that someone was probably waiting on the outside, too. Like, it wasn't just going to be one person. So all she could do was think to call the police, as she should have. The thing that really, like, just breaks my heart into a million pieces is the fact that she told dispatchers the elevator's working. Which is, like, so sad she said that, just knowing that, like, the police wouldn't come if the elevator didn't work. And that just, like... That's heartbreaking. I know. Like, that, like, fucked me up. I was, like, no one in their moment should have to, like, think, like, oh, disclaimer, the I'll say this and the police will have a better chance of coming. And like, it's insane to me that this is, like, the city of Chicago's housing. Yes. Like, this is, like, their housing. This the state's isn't, housing. This isn't a slumlord. This isn't, like, one person who let this go to shit. This is where they're putting the people who need help. Like, that's really sad. Yeah, and it's frustrating as hell. Let <sighs> me just keep going before I get on my soapbox. Yeah. <laughs> I will be on my soapbox by the time this is done. I know, I'm like, you know what, I know people don't come here for that, so I'm going to try to keep my cool. I'll save it to the end at least, but. <laughs> so like I said, after police just left, and two days later, the office, project office gets into the apartment, things are gone. There's no cash in the apartment, which Vernita was like, no, she got that $2,000 and she cashed it. She would have had cash left. Her television and her rocking chair were gone, and so was her phone. And remember, police heard the phone ringing. Ooh, that's weird. So either they came back, 
Either the people were familiar enough with their weigh-in that they came back later on in the night, or what's frustrating is that they were they, still there. They could have still been there, and they were just waiting for her to leave. Now, you know, who's to blame? Everyone is really pointing fingers because it was really soon. I feel like even before people were trying to solve the crime, people immediately were pointing fingers. Why did police not break down the door? Why? Why? Police say... They say, of course, they cannot break down a door unless they believe a crime was occurring. When they came back the next day and they still hadn't heard that she was there, they claim that they left because a CHA project officer security guard that they had hired showed up and told them not to and said that the person could sue them if nothing was really wrong. Okay, yeah, I don't think that's accurate. And so the police just listened. And Steve said that, like, throughout the article, he questioned everyone. He talked to police. He talked to security. And he said he would point out, like, even if they said that, you still had authority to break down the door. Yeah, exactly. That's probable cause. But police just say that they... They... It's basically a guessing game. They believe it's a guessing game if the call is serious enough to kick down a door. It is partially true that tenants have sued in the past and things like that. So police are like, we're going to pass this on. It's actually CHA. They didn't bring us a key. They didn't have a skeleton key. They didn't respond. So, and you know, it's sad because I am like, this is police's job. But based on everything you said, like, it does seem probable that someone could be trying to lure them in there. Like, that, I would never think that would happen, but it just seems like if that would happen anywhere, it might happen here. Yeah, I could definitely see it. Now, Steve talked to CHA as well. CHA put the blame on Ruthie. They stated <laughs> she replaced the lock and she didn't give them the replacement key. First of all... The janitor said that it could take, like, months to replace a lock, so a lot of people are forced to do it themselves. Second of all, Ruthie's daughter, Vernita, disputes that, saying she never remembers her mom replacing the locks by herself. Vernita said that the year prior, in 1986, Ruthie went through CHA to replace the lock, which was noted. So, Ruthie, or, I'm sorry, Vernita believes that when they changed her, Ruth, oh, Jesus. Vernita believes that when they changed the lock in 1986, they just lost the new key, never filed it, or forgot to file the new key. Which could have very well happened. Like, there are very few people working as janitors and maintenance men around here. So, who's to say they... It could have been an honest mistake. Maybe they just never filed it. Either way, they're just like, well, no, that's not our fault either. And then CHA said, well, we have an outside security firm, so we can't say why they told police not to open the door either. (laughs) Steve called the security firm. They said that um, they needed to speak with CHA, and they didn't have any answers, and they didn't know. Oh, okay. So it's just coming in circles. Like, no one wants to take responsibility, and it's like... It's 50% on the police and it's 50% on CHA, Chicago Housing, because it's on both of you. Yeah. The project should not be in the condition that they are, number one. 
But number two, police, you had reports of gunshots, screaming, and someone in distress. Yeah. From the victim and others. Like, truly, what more is considered an active crime? Yeah. <laughs> Any one of those on itself in a white neighborhood is an active crime. Just seems like they weren't going to go there. Yeah, and there's so much other, like... So many other comments that the police made and CHA made to try and justify their case. I don't even want to bring it up because I was just getting so irritated that no one could say, like, yeah, we messed up. We need to step it up there. It was just everyone pushing it on someone else. Anyway. In the court case now... Police did pretty quickly get some anonymous tips regarding what happened. Um, So they were able to make some arrests pretty quickly after. They arrested two men. One they arrested a couple days after. The other they arrested about two months after. The first, who was a couple days after, was 19-year-old Edward Turner. The other was 25-year-old John Hondras. Both men lived in ABLA housing units. Neither of them were on the lease at Grace Abbott, but, like, no one was on the lease, basically. Everyone was just running amok there, so. Edward Turner, he was currently unemployed and had no convictions, but had been arrested for unlawful use of a weapon recently. John Hondras had family members who were living in apartment 1108 at the time of Ruthie's murder, which was the adjacent apartment. John was unemployed and had previous convictions for robbery and driving a stolen vehicle. And so, like I said, it was anonymous tips. Um, Just to note, apartment 1108 was not leased to Hondras, so it wasn't a simple... As, like, check the adjacent apartment and look at the lease. Yeah. And when police went to apartment 1108, the medicine cabinet was screwed to the wall. So they had to do more digging. But neighbors came forward testifying that they saw Edward and John moving a TV on the night of April 22nd. And remember, her TV and her rocking chair were the only things that were stolen. Both men admitted to carrying the television. Both men admitted to carrying the rocking chair, but they pointed fingers at the other and said, I was just helping him move the furniture. In court, there was a lot of drama. The main part was basically whether Turner was involved and whether the 19-year-old pulled the trigger. It was basically all the witnesses said that John Hondras was there. Everyone said they saw him carrying items. Everyone said that he was who was throwing this little shindig in room 1108. So it wasn't really that much of a discussion. But Turner, they really, some people were saying, yeah, I saw him there and doing this crime. Other people said it was another person. So it was a lot of he said, she said, because there was like 15 people in this apartment room that night. Um, so in court, a witness named Tim Brown, who turned him out to be really flaky. So give this with a grain, take it with a grain of salt. But this is what he told the state and this is what the state believed. 
He told them that on the night of the murder, April 22nd, they had been having this little party in apartment 1109 when Brown told them he heard that you could remove the medicine cabinets in your apartment and go into the medicine cabinet in the adjacent apartment. Hondras and Turner talked about how they, you know, they were like, what? That's crazy. Later on in the night, they tried it out and they realized you could just take off the screws and they pushed the medicine cabinet to the side. And they said, this isn't confirmed. I don't know how. They said that there wasn't a medicine cabinet on the other side and they could just see directly from their apartment into the others, straight into Ruthie Mays. Now, police have the medicine cabinet. So I don't know how, like, they use it for evidence in this case. So I don't know how they couldn't confirm. Was the medicine cabinet in the bathroom when you showed up yeah. that night? Yeah. Like, how was that that... Uh, like, some people said they thought Ruthie moved the medicine cabinet herself because she why? had heard. I don't know. But they said... The attackers, the one who was there that night, apparently said it wasn't. And they were just, they climbed right through. So this Tim Brown person says that he watched Hondras climb onto the sink and into the hole where the medicine cabinet was, shimmy through the little space, and then climb into the other apartment where he heard a woman's voice say, who's there? He watched as Hondras disappeared into... Ruthie's apartment and moments later Brown heard a knock at his front door to open up and it was Hondras who asked for a jacket to cover his face. Hondras then walked back through the front. He walked like through the front of Ruthie's door and entered which this is why police like a reason why they doubt his story. They're like she just left it unlocked and he just walked back in. And maybe she did because, like, maybe she didn't have time to lock it. Either way, he said he just walked back in and then Brown turned back in and went into the bathroom and he saw the other guy, Edward Turner, going feet, like, he just saw his feet then going into Ruthie's apartment, too. Brown didn't go in Ruthie's apartment because he said the next thing he knew, he heard scuffling and he heard Turner yell, get down, and then heard four gunshots. Ten minutes or so later, Turner and Hondras were walking out of Ruthie's apartment with her television and then a few minutes later walking out with the rocking chair. A few hours later into the night, the men went back into Ruthie's apartment and collected gunshot shells. And Brown told the police they only collected three. So even though he was like, he is really sketchy. Like, he then said on the stand that it wasn't Turner who did it. It was another man and police committed police brutality and made him say it was Turner. He said it was still Hondras, but he was like, actually, it was still Hondras, but it wasn't Turner who did the killing. It was someone else. Okay. But either way, stuff about his case does make sense because it does make sense that he said they went back and got items. That would make sense because the phone wasn't there. The shells weren't there either. And he said they took three of the shells when there were four shots. One of them was still in Ruthie. That is, yeah. So parts of it do make sense. Like, I'm not saying he was there, but, like, there's definitely some knowledge in this group of people. Yeah. 
three different women, two of them girlfriends, testified on the night that Turner and Hondras had come to their apartments asking to leave a television and a rocking chair there for the night. Turner himself, on the stand, admitted to moving the furniture and even admitted that he went into Ruthie's apartment on April 22nd when it was propped open and saw blood pulled around her body but just helped continue to move the furniture. Because I guess he, like, knew if he snitched, it would be his ass next. But he just, like, didn't even... I don't know. It was kind of, like, on okay, one that's hand... still bad, though, even if that's what he did. Like, on one hand, you put yourself in their shoes and it's a life I can't even fathom. So, on one yeah. hand, you are just, like, surviving and, you know... But on the other hand, it was, like, I don't know, dude. You're making yourself look really bad. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you are just surviving, but that doesn't mean it's not a crime. Right. Like, she's a 52-year-old grandmother, and you're walking by her dead body carrying her TV. And you didn't have to kill her. You could have just beat her and taken the stuff. People speculate. People, like, another part of the state's argument was that she knew Turner and had seen him around, and that was why he specifically chose to kill her. When Hondras was the first Mm. who entered, it was just, like, robbing. So what do you, do you think they were found guilty or innocent? I don't know. What do you think? Would you find them guilty or innocent? <sighs> mm, I'd say guilty because even though it's too circumstantial, it just makes too much sense and there's no one else that would have been. So but I could see how someone wouldn't. Turner had a trial by jury Hondras chose a trial by judge. Turner was found not guilty on all charges. Hondras was found not guilty on all charges. Damn. This is a statement from the article that, um, like I said before, from the judge when he sentenced Hondras. And the judge, I was like, damn, you just said everything I wanted to say. (laughs) Quote, this case was lost not by the state's attorneys. This case was not even lost by the detectives who only got the evidence that they got in a damaged and sanitized crime scene. This case was lost by the tri- by the patrol division of the Chicago Police Department who stood by with a deaf ear to the multiple reports of gunshots being fired in 1109. They just couldn't be bothered with the hassle of entering a locked door. So they let them get away with it. This defendant may or may not be guilty, but the state has clearly failed to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. This court must accordingly find the defendant not guilty. He's discharged. End quote. Damn, that's really, really true. Like, Everything... even though that's probably, probably who did it, you can't, you don't convict people on probabilities. Everything is he said, she said. Like, all... And because there's no evidence because they None. didn't act. And, like, Tim Brown, that guy, he had charges at the time. He was really shaky. He, on the stand, went against everything he said. A six-page document he signed. Like, it was kind of, like, they had a better case on John Hondras, but Turner went first. And after Tim Brown was like, actually, no, Turner didn't do it, it the whole case just went out the window. Yeah. I do think there were so many people who saw them carrying the stuff Someone in the circle is involved. Yeah. For a fact, someone at the party in 1109 did this. And people know. But, like I said before, 
this life is literally like hustle or be hustled. So I'm not judging anyone for not coming forward and telling exactly what happened. But it's just like, I feel like they had some involvement. Now, I'm not really sure where they went after Turner or Hondras, Brown, any of them, because... The last article was really written in the 1990s by Steve Bogaira, who did the articles. So, like, I'm not really sure what happened to them. And they were acquitted. So, I guess it doesn't really matter. But I hope that they turned their lives around because they were both going down not the best path. And it's just like at the end of this, I don't know where to leave things. Like, this case really affected me, you know... They like people tell you in life you you do the right things, you get an education, you turn your life around. But what about when you do all of those things and it still doesn't work out? What about when yeah. you try, you're damned and it still doesn't work out? Yeah. And you had faith in God and that kind of stuff and it still doesn't work out. It's really really sad. So how did this, do you know how this specifically got turned into the Candyman thing? Or this is just what, like, inspired the movie? Like, the coming out of the wall? So, no. When this did case, the first movie come out? 1992. And this okay. happened in 1987. Okay. Um, one of, like, the main characters, her last name is McCoy. Mm-hmm. Ruthie Mae McCoy. Oh. And it happened in Cabrini Green. Yeah. Which is an ABLA apartment. So, I'm not completely sure how it was inspired that much. Like, I'm not completely sure how he heard about this or everything. I think it was just the fact of, with police not responding, it was like in just one of the first times it was really unfathomable. But I'm not sure how it got turned into Candyman to the extent it did. But did they say this, like, inspired them? Oh, yeah. Like, okay. people people say, for a fact, if you type this, if you type it in, it comes up, the legend behind Candyman, the case mm. that inspired Candyman. And another reason why I wanted to do this was because in 2020, a TikTok went viral, and of course, it was a white woman who went into her, I don't know how, like, because I didn't see the TikTok, I just saw articles about Ruthie May's murder when this TikTok was posted and it was a woman who for whatever reason removed her bathroom cabinet and in behind the medicine cabinet was like an abandoned apartment. I remember hearing about that. Yeah so that you know and everyone was like oh my god and then you know I'm just thinking of it like think if you're still a young black woman living in the project you probably see that TikTok and you're probably like these are our lives. Like, this is your apartment that's vacant. Yeah, but... I even, project... think of, I even think of Tay Pancakes living in Atlanta, and she said that the thing in her apartment building where there was a shared attic, and there was clearly someone had taken something from her apartment the first night she moved in. And, of course, she's a young black woman. She said she called maintenance, and they didn't take her seriously. Right. <laughs> and it's just like... And I'm not saying this is nothing about, like, this girl shouldn't have posted this TikTok or anything like that. I'm just saying that we have, so many of us have seen Candyman, have heard of it. Mm -hmm. A lot of us have heard about this TikTok. Who has heard about Ruthie Mae McCoy? Who has heard about her murder? She inspired all of this. So that's why it's like, these stories need to be told. Like, 
they're not murder mysteries. They're not things like that. But this was so much of like so many preventable things all culminating years of neglect for the black community years of neglect for this housing project which is literally a slum and a breeding ground for crime and a grandmother gets murdered like trying to turn her life around it's just baffling and And it's like it seems like maybe if they just de- designated a police officer for this apartment building, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. Like, I get that police officers are at risk, but I, it's, I'm not trying to be rude, but that's kind of their job. Like, if they're not going to do it, then who is? It's just like, you can't just turn a blind eye on things just because it's out of control. And it's crazy, in the articles at one point, like, the spokesperson for the police literally tried to say that there was some sort of evidence that there were prank calls, like, coming from the projects. And Steve, the writer, I think, asked for it or said, like, what evidence? And he was like, you know, like, empirical evidence that we've gathered. Like, we know it from because we've seen it. And then he said that Steve said in the next paragraph, well, the evidence that the residents of the projects have is just that the police doesn't show up and they have that because they've lived it. That empirical. Yeah, that's their empirical. That was literally what he wrote. And I was like, okay, thank you. Like, and it's not saying like, I'm not even trying to shit on the police or anything like that. I'm just saying it starts with education. It just starts with education. And he just said like, Even back then in 1987, there was a lack of education for people living in these projects, for these at-risk people living in the projects. And now the ABLA part, like, the projects are torn down. They're trying to, I'm sure they're trying to gentrify everything, (laughs) but the projects are torn down. People did want to save them. People were like, this is history, like, save them, fix them up, but... They are torn down, and, you know, that was, in a way, Ruthie Mays McCoy, May McCoy, her mor- her murder already has impacted things. Like, Candyman has impacted things crazy. You know, that was also an interracial couple in the 90s shown on screen. That yeah. was big for people. So, she's affected lives in many ways that I can say, but I just wanted to do this case because I was like, how the hell have I never heard of this? And it inspired such an iconic movie. Right. Like, I'm sick of seeing Lori Vallow and these women on TV. Yeah. And I don't know about these cases. Like, same. It's lucky enough that they even made the movie, to be honest, but I'm glad that they did. And I'm glad that you told me the story. And then I think about my privilege and I'm like, I should never Uh, even bitch about having a job when people just want a job more than anything. I was like, oh my God, I will never bitch about like where I live about my job because I have safety and comfort and that is all I need. That's really, yeah, the most basic of needs. It's like everyone should be grateful for absolutely every single thing that you have. Yeah. And just like one more thing, I'll just add, what can you do in your community to help minorities what can you do to help people who just need a little extra help like or how can you at least like make yourself aware of yeah the history anything like that you yeah. know research your community education research. is key educate yourself exactly <laughs> we're getting deep jackie and i are just like i'm like are we used to recording <laughs> we're just having a conversation at this point we're just going deep it needed to be said though but 
I'll end it there because I could talk for another hour about this. Yeah, I'll I could end too. it there. Let me know if you guys have heard of this. Like, I cannot believe I haven't. So let me know if you guys have. Let me know if you were familiar with this. Let me know if you're like, bitch, you're a little privileged life. I can't believe you didn't know about this. <laughs> yeah, let us know. Let us know your thoughts. And if you like the movie. Yeah, but I'm going to go watch that now. I hope everyone's having a great uh, <laughs> September. We're almost at October. So let us know what you guys are doing for spooky season. Hit us up on Instagram and Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Ew That's Creepy Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Want to creep on us? Follow us on social media at Ew That's Creepy Podcast or send us an email at Ew That's Creepy Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, creepy cats.